morning slash afternoon almost. Um, we're small and select, but elite, I feel. Um, but we still use the mic because of the recording purposes. So it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. We know it's Friday. You've heard a lot this week. Um, we've sat under a lot of teaching, a lot of encouragement, a lot of challenge. Um, so we do appreciate you coming here uh, just to hear a little bit more. There are three of us involved this morning. Myself, I'm Ruth. I work for International Justice Mission. We have Stephen, who's with Release, and Johnny, who's with Stand By Me. So we'll each be uh, taking different parts of it. And we've got some health and safety kind of announcements, which we have to do in all the seminars, as you know. So in the unlikely event of a fire, we only have one exit, which is this door. So please leave by that door calmly, quietly, um, uh, follow the stewards, they'll uh, tell us where to go to the rendezvous point, which I believe is that direction over in playing fields. So just follow stewards um, and stay there until we have been counted and until you're told that we can leave. Um, to avoid disruption, if we could switch off our mobile phones at this point, that would be really helpful. This will be recorded and all the recordings are available at the information desk, as you know. And lastly, um, the seminar team really do value your feedback. We want to know what we're doing right and what we can do better in the future, what topics you're interested in. And so there are seminar feedback forms scattered about. There's some over here, if there aren't enough here. Um, please do fill that in before you leave. So this seminar is part of a series um, which the Mission Agencies Partnership, or MAP, have put together for this week, looking at lessons from the Gospels and from Acts that the church today can learn from. And we're, today we're looking at Acts, Church Under Pressure. We want to learn from the early church, but also the church around the world. And we want to learn what we can take and apply to our situations, whether that's a rural church in Fermanagh or a church in the city of Belfast. And our aim today is that we're all encouraged, inspired by other examples, and equipped to live out our faith in an unchanging God in what is an ever-changing world. We're only introducing the topic and some thoughts. We want this to inspire further conversation today. Uh, please come and see us at our stands and in the next few weeks. We have used the three C's today to make it truly biblical. Um, so we're looking at calling, cost, and courage. And Johnny is going to start us off looking at calling. Excellent. Thank you, Ruth. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see you. Uh, God is a God of encounter. Throughout the Bible we find, whether it's in the, the garden, whether it's in a cave, uh, whether it's through a burning bush, God always longs for encounter with his people. And as the early church begins its journey, there's this incredible encounter that we experience in John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn to John chapter 20. And if you don't have one uh, handy, don't worry, I'll read the passage for us. John 20, starting in verse 10. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. This is just after they've discovered that Jesus is not there, that he's, that he's risen. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I'll take him away. And then this infamous piece of scripture, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary was looking for the Jesus that she knew, not the Jesus that she needed to know. There's a real danger that for us as Christians that we search for Jesus in the wrong places and yet whenever we go to the tomb we realize that he is risen, that he is active and at work in the world. The danger is that sometimes we can hold to Jesus as a good teacher, as a philosopher, as a good humanitarian and those things, but he is so much more than all of those things. And so you cannot be the savior of the world if you die and you stay dead. And so Mary has this phenomenal encounter with the risen Jesus and it impacts upon her. She wants to go and she wants to tell the disciples. And so as she rushes off to tell the disciples, we find quite soon after that, this heading in your Bibles, Jesus appears to the disciples behind locked doors. We have this encounter from verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And so John doesn't want us to miss this little important fact that the disciples are located not just in a room closed away with each other, but they're located behind a locked door for fear of the religious establishment of the day. They've killed Jesus, but they want to crush this revolution. They want to take away this insurrection, this revolt that's happening against the common pattern of the day. And so they try to to seek out anyone who aligned themselves with Jesus. And so the disciples find themselves hiding in a room. And you can kind of imagine this moment. I wonder, did they hear something just before as Jesus was about to step in? What was that noise? Turn down the lights, lock the door, be quiet. Shh. And then there's this amazing moment where even though the door is locked, Jesus walks into the room. That can't have been a comforting moment, can it? (laughs) You're sitting behind locked doors and all of a sudden, bam, Jesus is there. And so instantly Jesus has to say the thing that you say if you walk into a room that happens to have a locked door. Peace be with you. It's okay. It's me. It's Jesus. And he goes on to have this incredible encounter with them. He speaks this commission over them that they're to receive the Spirit, that they're to take this message of love and hope and forgiveness to the world. And then he does something quite interesting. We're told by John that he breathes 
on them. He breathes the Spirit of God upon them. And it, it takes us back to Genesis. It takes us back to the beginning of whenever God encounters Adam. He makes Adam out of the clay, and yet he breathes into him life. And so as Jesus steps into this moment, when the disciples are so confined by their fear, he breathes into them the life, the Spirit of God, to help them to realize that they are to be fully alive, that they're not to be constrained by fear, but they're to step out in the freedom of knowing the risen Jesus. And so they step out knowing that they now have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead living in them. That as all of that guilt, as all of that shame that was piled upon Jesus as he went to the grave, that the Spirit of God worked through him and rose him from the dead. It brought him back to life. And so for us, we too have that spirit within us. And so the charge to the disciples is, what is there to fear? Because you have the spirit of God, the same power that was there at the beginning in creation, that was there in the resurrection of Jesus, now lives in us and works through us. And so the command to the disciples is, go and take this message to the world. And so at the beginning of Acts, we have this moment, this day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes in such phenomenal power. And, and as the church steps out, as they unlock the door, as they step in to public with this message of freedom and hope and forgiveness, that as they do that, that the Spirit convicts 3,000 people to become Christians on that first day of the church. What a phenomenal transformation in the disciples to go from people hidden behind locked doors to being people stepping out, proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And I suppose the challenge for us as a church today is where have we locked the door? Where have we shut ourselves away? Where have we hidden away the gospel? And, and actually, where do we find our confidence to step out and to speak up, to be the words and actions of Jesus in a world that needs to know him? And so as we look then a little bit further along in the journey for the early church, it's not long before the cost starts to be counted. Because in this moment, we have 3,000 people that become Christians. But in Acts chapter 4, the church steps out and speaks again. And the Sadducees, the religious establishment, part of the religious establishment of the day, they're not happy that the church is speaking this message. They've two main grievances with this. The first is this, that they felt that these men were unauthorized to be people who should be able to speak up and teach the scriptures. And yet, although they may have been unauthorized and may not have been through all the scholarly lines that the Sadducees have been through, you don't need permission to do something that you've already been commissioned to do. And so although they may not have had the qualifications, they step out because it's Jesus who qualifies them. It's the spirit that works through them. And so they step out and they take this message. And as well, the second thing that we find that greatly annoys them is this, is that the Sadducees are confronted with a worldview that they don't believe. They're hearing about resurrection. They don't believe in resurrection at all. And so for us as the church, we step out with this message that confronts a whole worldview and we recognize and we should expect it that there will be a cost because Jesus prepared the disciples for this moment. But here's the amazing thing. We're told in Acts chapter 4 that in that moment, in response to this, there's now the church has grown to something over 5,000 men. In Acts 2, we're told it's 3,000 people, but now it's 5,000 men. 
And so I think it's fairly safe to assume that as pressure mounts on the church, as the religious order of the day felt like they were killing off this uprising, this revolution of Jesus, that as they thought they were winning, they didn't realize that they were losing because you cannot contain the power of God. And so the church grows more and more and more as the pressure mounts as the world, as the forces of evil in the world try and take over, we know the promise of Jesus that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But for us to see that, we need to have the courage to face the cost of what it means to unlock the door and step out into the world. So just as we have covered Acts 2 and Acts 4. We want to move on now to Acts 6. So can I encourage you to open up the scriptures if you have them there. And let's look at Acts chapter 6 and see exactly what we're told there. These will be portions of scripture that are very, very familiar to you. They're about Stephen. But we're not going to look at the martyrdom of Stephen, which is probably what you might naturally assume we're going to look at. We're actually going to look slightly before that. So Acts chapter 6, if we look... Uh, from probably verse 8 onwards. Let's just look at a little glimpse of this man, Stephen, as we look at the term or the subject, cost. It says in verse 8, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I want to just look at two things under this particular heading, and you see it on the screen behind me. The paradox of Stephen And then I want to move on very quickly to the parallels of Jesus. So let's look at the paradox, first of all, of of Stephen. And first of all, we notice in this particular piece of Scripture, Stephen's humility. Do you see what it says in verse 8? Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. This Stephen had been endowed by God with grace, with power, and was able to perform miraculous signs and wonders. What sort of ministry might a man like that have? I think it would be very uh, upfront in leadership. And yet, if you read the chapter before this, what do we find about Stephen? We find that Stephen actually was looking after the widows. He was one of the seven that had been chosen as part of that to look after the widows. A very humble act of service. 
For this man who was able to perform great wonders, great signs, was full of grace and power. And I think we've got lots to learn from our brother Stephen here. The second thing uh, that we can see here is the birth pangs. It's the birth pangs of persecution. You see, up until this time, really it had been relatively low. As Johnny has already said, they hid themselves away for a short time. And then Stephen, he's out here very, very prominently in the community. And the people seize him. They take him and they put him before the Sanhedrin, as we've read here. This is the birth pangs of persecution of the church of Jesus Christ arising. The next thing to to realize is the accusations that are made. Do you see what it says in verse 12? Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. We have heard people say, and I want to try and relate this from the first century to 2017 and be an encouragement for all of us. If any of your workplaces, if in your college, if in your school, if in your community, people say anything ill against you, then look at the the work of Stephen. Look at the life of Stephen as our example. We should be showing great courage because here's a man who had accusations thrown against him and was thrown into prison after this. Sorry, he was stoned obviously to death uh, after this. The final thing uh, is angelic. Look at the very end. What does it say? All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen And they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. If you were before the Sanhedrin and they had all these accusations before you and they were throwing it to you, do you think you would be sitting there with a face like an angel? Stephen was. Why? Because his faith was in God. His faith and his trust were taught. And we've so much to learn from Stephen. That when people accuse us in our workplace, in our schools, in our community, or wherever, that we still can have the grace, the power that Stephen had from on high. It comes from on high. The paradox that I mentioned at, at the start, he had joy. So even within his suffering, he had joy. And if I read the scriptures correctly, from Genesis through to Revelation, we find a people of God who suffered and yet had joy. The people of God in the Old Testament were cast into exile, weren't they, in Babylon? And yet, what does Nehemiah say? The joy of the Lord is my or our strength. They had joy, and yet they were suffering. Read all through the New Testament. Paul suffered. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was thrown into jail. And yet, he says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. He was full of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. He said, how can a man who's been thrown into jail and whipped and cast aside and beaten and had to run from a town because people wanted to kill him, how can he then say, rejoice in the Lord? This is a paradox that with suffering is tremendous joy and both go ideally together. And the parallels that we find here with Jesus is incredible. We read there that Stephen performed wonders and signs among the people. And we know that of Jesus, don't we? He performed great wonders, great signs amongst all the people, similar to Jesus. He was accused. What happens to Jesus? He gets taken before the Sanhedrin, just the same as Stephen was. And there are false accusations made towards him. Exactly the same 
as Stephen. Prayer. We haven't read it there, but if you read to the end of the next chapter, whenever Stephen is actually stoned, he looks up into heaven and he asks God, as he's being stoned to death, to forgive the people. What does Jesus do on the cross when he's hanging? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How can a man, how can two men actually utter prayers of grace for people that are actually killing them? How can that happen? Only through a God of grace. Only through his supernatural power. Not our own strength. Must be through God that Stephen could say, forgive them while he's being stoned to death. That Jesus could say, forgive them even while he's being hung on a cross. And the bravery. These are two things that, that we haven't really uh, read today. But after Stephen is actually stoned to death, people come and take his body and bury him. They show bravery. Stephen's just been stoned to death because he's a Christian. And yet other Christians come forward, identify themselves with Stephen, and then bury him. And we know the same is true of Jesus, don't we? What happens whenever Jesus is hung on the cross? When he dies, we're told that Nicodemus comes and Joseph of Arimathea, and they request of Pilate, can we go and take Jesus' body off the cross? They're identifying with Jesus, even though that would have been a huge cost for them because they traveled in high circles in the social sphere. But they go and get Jesus' body and he's buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. See the bravery of Joseph and of Nicodemus and of these people that then bury Stephen as well? Ordinary believers like you and me, what gives them the power? God. God's the only person that can give them the power to do that. So Stephen has touched on our next section, um, really at the end there. Uh, so we can clearly see that we have a calling to go into the world, make disciples. That calling is from God. It's the purpose of each person redeemed by God and brought into his family. However, often that calling comes with a cost. And we see this cost come through in the New, in the New Testament, in the lives of the disciples, in the life of Stephen, pretty starkly as we've been reading about so how are we going to step out? Knowing we're called, but also knowing that there will almost certainly be a cost when we do. We need courage. Courage has different facets. And sometimes what looks like courage might not actually be courage. Whenever I was 18, I was after, when I was finishing school, before I went to university, I wanted to go on a gap year. So I decided I would go to Africa for uh, nine months. And I had a lot of money to raise to do that. Um, so my family and I, we were trying to figure out how will I raise money. And one beautiful Sunday, sunny morning, I remember really clearly my dad comes bounding into my room and says, I know, Ruth, how we can raise the money. You can do a parachute jump. And I thought, no, you can do a parachute jump. So I did. I did a tandem jump. And I remember we were getting all ready. We were putting on the suit. We were uh, getting strapped up. And there was another man who was the instructor. And whenever you're doing a first time one, you do it. Strapped to someone else, close proximity. And I said, so have you been doing this for a long time? And he said, no, this is my first one. But he was lying, thank goodness. So I did the jump and it was 
I guess exhilarating, etc., but terrifying. And whenever I was in Africa then, uh, my team, we decided to do some more jumps, but this time by ourselves, not in tandem. And so we did a lot of preparation, a lot of, you know, going over and over and over again, the drill, how, exactly how you would step out, exactly what you would say, recite to yourself as you were falling, all of that, over and over again, and waited for good weather. And so we did our first one, and I was absolutely terrified absolutely terrified my hands are swelling even thinking about it but because I was so frightened I was determined to do it again because I don't like to be frightened and so I did it all over again now I wouldn't necessarily say that was courage it was more stubbornness because I did not want this event to beat me I did not want to feel like I was weak or afraid or frightened so I wouldn't necessarily say that was courage But throughout the passages that Johnny and Stephen have already opened up to us, already looked at, we can see so many examples of where real courage has come in. And there isn't one particular passage I want to look at. I'll be looking at several of uh, the ones from Acts chapter 2 up to 7, 8. So let's go through some of these examples. Well, Johnny already uh, went over Peter addressing the crowd in chapter 2, which was pretty miraculous in and of itself because we've just seen him in chapter 1 in, uh, uh, in a room with a group of people pretty, pretty afraid, pretty discouraged, confused. What has happened? Um, this man they'd been following has been killed. What? But yet in chapter 2, here he is boldly addressing the crowd, challenging them. He's not mincing his words to them. He's not playing nice. He's giving them the truth. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is not mincing his words there. Or in chapter 4, we see Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, being hauled before the Sanhedrin to uh, defend their actions. And they declare in verse 19, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Again, in verse 10, they were proclaiming Christ, whom you crucified. In chapter 5, we're told that the apostles continued to preach despite being put in jail and the threat of jail. Verse 18. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. We must obey God rather than men, they say. And then later in Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin in chapter 7, he continues to preach the truth that he knows right unto death. And again then in chapter 8, all the believers are scattered after Stephen is stoned to death. They're scattered, but they keep preaching the truth despite being scattered through persecution. They keep going. So many examples of courage, of all the circumstances around them, really telling them, you should just keep quiet. Their past experience telling them, you should keep quiet, but they can't and they won't. How is that? How can they have such courage? I think they have a certainty in their risen Christ. Before Christ rose again, the believers were saddened, they were downcast, they were confused, such as the, the, the people on the road to Emmaus that Jesus actually met and walked with. They were, we were told they were saddened. 
such as the disciples in the upper room. But what changes? They meet their risen Christ, and that changes everything. It hasn't ended in Christ on the cross and Christ being put in the grave. The story wasn't over then. God was still working, and there Jesus is risen. And you can see through all of the speeches that we uh, read from Acts 2 onwards to Acts um, to Stephen's speech, whether it's before the Sanhedrin or before the people, they all talk about this Jesus who is risen, which I think it's really exciting. And it's something that we need to grow in our certainty of over time. So, for example, Peter says in verse 32 of chapter 2, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact of the fact. This isn't just what we hoped. This isn't just a dream or a wish. This is fact and we have seen it. In chapter 4, verse 10, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Once again, what do they come back to? The fact that Christ is risen. Chapter 5, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Again, coming back to the fact of Christ risen. And Stephen, just before he dies, in chapter 7, verse 56, he says, Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is not dead. He is standing at the right hand of God. The certainty of a risen Christ gives them courage. But also the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, he told his disciples in John 14, 15, I am going away, but actually I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. And that's better, which is hard to believe. How could it be better than Christ? But it's able to indwell and empower every believer. And look at the transformation in the disciples once the Spirit comes at Pentecost in chapter 2. From huddling in fear and confusion to declaring the truth despite facing opposition and death. I think that's really amazing. And how can we, uh, how can we be filled with the Spirit? Well, we're all filled with the Spirit whenever we receive Christ. But let's grow in that. Let's ask God to show us what the power of the Spirit can do. And lastly, I think they had confidence in their calling. So going back to everything that Johnny and Stephen have shared with us, they had confidence in their calling. In chapter, chapter 4, 20, um, they, the disciples say, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It was just bubbling up in them, spilling out, spilling over. They had to share it. They cared a lot more about God's opinion of them than they did of man's opinion. You judge for yourselves whether it's right that we obey you rather than God. And they believe, no, it is better that we obey God. They cared a lot more about God's opinion and his calling on their lives than they did about, their, about other people and what other people thought of them. I wonder if you or I can say that for ourselves. Do we care more about what God thinks or about what other people think? And I know for myself, when I look into my heart, there are lots of times when I have cared a lot more about what other people thought. Whenever I was in school, um, 17 or 18 years old, I was in uh, Lower Sixth, and a few people came from other schools and joined us in Lower Sixth, and there was one girl, let's call her Kate. And Kate came from another school, and Kate was so quiet. 
she barely said boo to a goose. And uh, my friends and I, we had a bit of a reputation in our group for sort of uh, collecting up waifs and strays. Um, I went to an all-girls school, so it was, you know, lots of, you know, in fighting and things. Um, and so my group would collect up these waifs and strays from other groups, uh, girls that had been chucked out at some point from their group of friends for various reasons or got into conflict. And so, you know, we wanted to speak to Kate. We wanted to be her friend. And so we would try in the sixth form centre, how are you? Um, what's going on? Are you enjoying being here? But it was like trying to get water from a stone. She was so quiet, maybe one word answers. And so over time, I sort of, I sort of just gave up, stopped trying. It was getting a bit embarrassing because she wasn't really talking back and I had other friends to talk to and, and they would sort of be like, well, why are you bothering talking to Kate? And so over time, I, I kind of gave up. And one day I was in the bathrooms and, 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 and washing my hands at the sink and uh, who came out of one of the stalls but Kate and she was carrying her lunch, her empty lunchbox. And what it transpired was that she actually was eating her lunch in the toilets every day because she had no friends, nobody to talk to. And that really hit me. I could have tried harder with Kate, but I was too afraid and I cared too much what, the other, what my other friends thought and about the awkwardness and the embarrassment of trying. And so we do fail and we do make mistakes but let's be people who are growing in this and asking God to give us certainty and confidence in our risen King. Let's be asking God to keep filling us with his spirit, to have the power to step out and the power to speak the truth. Let's be asking God for increased confidence in our calling and what we are here to do. In IJM, we uh, hear stories all the time. And my job is hugely about telling stories, drinking tea and telling stories. And I think it's a real privilege to be part of something uh, where we are seeing people uh, have courage, act out of courage all of the time. The stories are of suffering, of betrayal, of deceit, often of fear, but also the stories are of real courage. And it's wonderful being able to share them. I'm constantly amazed by the courage of those who work for IJM around the world and the courage of those that we seek to help. Often slave owners and traffickers use violence as a normal part of their methods of keeping control. I could tell you stories of petrol being poured on arms and burning the arms or of hands being chopped off because of disobedience, of beatings whenever someone is sick and can't work. Yet IJM staff and partners and volunteers around the world continually put themselves in harm's way, walking into places of darkness and violence in order to help the most vulnerable. In Kenya, IJM's work involves tackling head-on the problem of police brutality and corruption. We take on cases like Joseph, who you can see on the screen, who was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. A riot broke out near his home. And so he was falsely arrested. The police needed someone to arrest. So they thought Joseph's as good as anyone. And he spent 14 months away from his family. And so our team in Kenya will take on cases like Stevens, but it's risky work. Challenging corruption, calling out those who abuse their power, has its consequences. 
And last year, our lawyer, Willie Kamani, and our client, Joseph Atmwenda, and our taxi driver were all on their way home from court where they were fighting a similar case of police abuse, and they were abducted. And so the search began to find them. They were found a week later. Their bodies were found a week later. They had been murdered, and their last days had not been pleasant. Five men, including four police officers in Kenya, are currently on trial for these murders. My colleague, Willie, knew the risks in the kind of work he was doing. He knew the risks, and they took all the precautions they could. But he continued with what he was doing. Why did he keep on going? And I hear stories not just of the bravery of my colleagues, but also of our clients. People who have been through a huge amount of pain and fear, yet who take brave steps to recover or to help others. This is Sammy. Sammy was looking for a better paying job. A lot of the stories we tell start with that. But she was tricked, drugged and sold into a brothel. For three years, she lived a life of exploitation. When she was eventually rescued, she wasn't satisfied with that. She told her IJM social worker about other girls who needed help. And actually, this was not very long after she had been rescued, which is really unusual. She led IJM and the police back to a brothel where she had been, and she showed them a trap door, a secret door where six girls were being hidden behind in this tiny little crawl space. The door could only be opened from the outside. She says, I like to help others and I like to help those who are sick. I want to help rescue others like how I was rescued. Why would she go back to the hell she had escaped? I go back to what we have been talking about, calling, cost and courage. Knowing our calling, knowing the cost, but taking courage because of our risen Christ, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, and because of our conviction. Stephen. Uh, we looked earlier at Stephen, what we know as the, the first martyr uh, of the Christian faith, didn't we? That was in the first century. Uh, and we all know here today that things like that don't happen today. Don't we? Well, they do. Exactly the same as happened to Stephen in the first century happens in 2017. And so in many areas around the world, people are accused falsely of all sorts of things. You'll have heard and be very familiar with the blasphemy laws that happen in a number of countries. Pakistan in particular, Afghanistan and, and others are highlighted. W what are they taken to court for? The blasphemy laws are generally against the mosque, or something said against the mosque. There could be something that is said against the Quran, something that's said perhaps against Allah, or something that's said perhaps against Muhammad. That's what makes up the, the blasphemy laws, and it happens in many, many occasions. Now, to go back to Stephen. Stephen said things about the mosque, the temple, if you like. He said things about Allah, our God. He said things uh, about Muhammad. He says things about Moses. Do you see the, the similarities? Exactly what happened in the first century is happening today all over the world. We need to keep our ears and our eyes open to these things that are going on. I want to share with you just one particular story. 
And I want to uh, tell you about this man here. This is a guy called Pastor Raymond Coe. Pastor Raymond Coe has a calling. Uh, he showed tremendous courage, but there has been a tremendous cost to him being a follower of Jesus. Pastor Raymond Coe lives in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia. And uh, I was communicating with Pastor Raymond Coe in February of this year, 2017. In fact, I was due to meet with him at the end of February 2017. But unfortunately, I couldn't. And let me explain to you why I couldn't meet with him. Pastor Raymond Coe one day received a, a call from one of his parishioners. He's a pastor. He has uh, two clinics uh, in Kuala Lumpur. And he also pastors a church. And one of his particular flock, or one of the congregation, if you like, called him and asked for his help. Got into his car. He drove out onto the highway. And as he was driving down the highway, five uh, black SUVs surrounded his car and boxed him into the middle of the road. Behind that were two Hondas, little silver ones. I've seen the video footage of it. And behind that, two motorcyclists who were stopping the traffic. And at that stage, a number of men, we, we count, I think, something around 13 to 15 men, get out, surround Pastor Raymond's car, take him out of the car, put him into the SUV. One of them jumps into his car and drives it off, and everybody moves on. And it took 45 seconds for that to happen. Pastor Raymond Coe was abducted. Why? Because he's a follower of Jesus. That's it. It's the only reason that he was abducted. And Pastor Raymond Coe hasn't been found, and that was on the 13th of February this year, and we're now into August. Pastor Raymond's son uh, believes that, that he's been killed uh, simply because he's a follower of Jesus, and he was helping the community and helping other people. And so what happened to Stephen all those years ago is still happening to believers in Jesus around the world. It may not happen in Northern Ireland at the minute, but it's happening in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and Sudan and in Malaysia and, in, and the list goes on of the number of places that it's actually happening. And so part of the organization that I'm with, Release International's ministry, is to pray for these people. To pray, not necessarily that they'll be taken out of their suffering, because this is the request that we get from these people, but it's that within their suffering they'll be raised up with strength, grace, and love and be able to show love even to their captors because love kills hate. We're not called to return hate for hate. When hate's shown to us, scriptures teach me that we show love back again. And so we want to pray for these people that they'll be able to show love back again. Can I encourage you to take a little teddy bear on your way out the door? And the teddy bear is there that when it's in your house, it reminds you to pray for people like Pastor Raymond. We don't know if he's alive or dead. He hasn't been found. The authorities have basically given up looking for him. But there are many, many others in jails who've been abducted or who are suffering within their jobs discrimination, within their teaching careers discrimination, or, or whatever. Maybe that little teddy bear will remind you to pray for those particular people. And if you want to find out more information, put your name on the sheet as well.
Thanks, Stephen. So these uh, these three principles of, of calling, uh, cost, and courage are not things that are abstract principles that are always about over there, but they're principles that we uh, should each carry, that we recognize that we are all called people, that we're all sent people, um, and to step out into the world, be it your workplace, be it your friendship circles, be it your sports team, that requires great courage. And, and as we do that, we recognize that there will be a cost. There is a cost of following after Jesus. Steve and I were just chatting about this uh, before the seminar that actually it's about realizing that if we're really following after Jesus then there should be a cost somewhere because Jesus says that we are to take up our cross uh, and follow after him and so uh, I want to share just one story with you uh, just to finish off uh, and it's from our work in Myanmar, Burma as you may formerly know it uh, and it's this little house here uh, one of the things I love uh, with my work is getting to go and visit these random houses around the world where lots of our kids live and yet this was a house that was a little bit different. Uh, this house is built in Shan State in Burma, which to give you an idea, because your geography might not be brilliant for the layout of Myanmar, is about the size of Ireland. It's off to the east. Uh, and the population of it, the Christian population of it, is estimated to be somewhere around about 5%. Optimists will say 8%. Um, and so we partner with the Bible College in Myanmar and Yangon, who have been heading up and working here, and they saw the real need uh, of the kids in this particular state and so they'd asked us if we would open a children's home a children's village to provide safety and refuge and God's love and action uh, for those kids and so in January of last year I went out and we visited this tiny little house and I met this guy called James his actual name wasn't James his actual name is Chan Troy Tang but he told me that's really hard to say so he told me to call him James and whenever I went out and saw him it was this tiny little bamboo hut he'd lined the inside of it with cling film and I was like why have you lined the walls with cling film and as any proud intuitive man would say he was like that's to keep the wind out I thought, all right. And the, the other thing he really wanted to show me was he'd, he'd dug this kind of well and he got this little generator. And when you turned that on, it brought clean water out of the, the ground. And, and it was all these little things that were steps in the right direction. But it was all this hope of having this children's village established. And I sat with him one afternoon and we just chatted about what his hopes were for moving into this area. We'd heard stories through the Bible college about how uh, Christians are being persecuted, how the church is being persecuted in those regions. And so this was a step of massive courage because he actually came from the opposite side of the country, from a relatively Christian part of the country, and yet he felt that God was calling him to move into Shan State. And so he and his wife and their little nine-month-old son had moved across. And he explained something to me that as he explained it, it resonated so much with, with what I know of following Jesus here. He said, Johnny, there's one thing that I could do that would be really frowned upon. He said, that's this. He said, if I go into someone else's house and start talking to them about what I believe, that will cause untold problems and misery for everyone. He said, but what I can do is I can go and visit them in their homes, make friends with them, and invite them back to my house. He says, when they come back to my house, we can talk about whatever I want. And so he said, what I want to do is I want to step out. I want to make friends with people. And then I want to bring this message into our friendship. One year later, almost to the day, our children's village opened in Shan State in Myanmar. And there's kids that are being impacted by that work, but there's a community that's being impacted as well. Taking those small steps of courage, trusting God in the midst of it, and then seeing God at work through it. And we were reminded, I guess, about the need for these homes because... 
about four months after we got back uh, from our trip in Myanmar, we have a home up in Tamu, right in the border with India. And we got this message through that as the guys were clearing up from school that day, the caretaker went out to open the gates to let the kids go home. And as he opened the gates, he heard the sound of a little baby crying. And having been at our school in Tamu, I can tell you now, when you look up and down the street at night, you can hardly see a thing. Probably a street light every 100 meters. And so he started to look around and underneath a little fruit tree that grows over our gatepost, he found this little baby wrapped up in cloth. Uh, and so he grabbed her and he did what any bloke does in that situation, runs in and finds someone who's female and goes, can you help? And uh, we started to undo these little uh, cloths that she was wrapped in. And we discovered that the only thing that she had in her possession was this tiny little piece of paper torn out of a desk calendar, the 20th of May, 2016. A little bit of writing scribbled on the back of it that didn't really make sense to anyone. And all we could figure was that this must have been her date of birth. It was the safest thing to presume. That means she was just nine days old, left with no one who wanted her. And yet into that, in the midst of that hardship, there's a calling on us as Christians to bring God's love through our words and through our actions. And so we've brought her in uh, to what is the most incredible little home that you'll ever find, uh, right up there on the border with India. And it's a home for all of these kids who've been orphaned or abused or abandoned. And yet into the midst of this family, this little baby was brought. And all the other kids in the home put their heads together and they decided she needs a name. She didn't even have a name. And the name they decided on was Naomi. Uh, if you follow the dates, Naomi's first birthday was just a few months ago. We celebrated that. Um, but it's that sense of us as a church being called to go to the places that maybe aren't always comfortable, that take us beyond our comfort zones, that take us out into a broken and hurting world. But as we do that, we go as people who are called. We go as people who have the courage to step out and to realize that we get to speak God's love and show God's love in our actions. Whether that's here in Coleraine, whether that's in Colombia, whether that's in Kazakhstan, it doesn't matter. It's wherever our feet find us is where we follow after this mission. And yes, we realize that there's a cost. There should be a cost. The disciples in Jesus' time were prepared for it, and we should be prepared for it today. But it shouldn't diminish our courage. That as we go from here, even today, there might be opportunities for us to speak and show God's love in action. And through that, we trust that as we've been hearing all week, that through the power of God's spirit, that he would take people like you and I and use us for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. And we thank you that you look upon humanity and you look upon it with compassion. God, that in a world that, that wars against your plans, uh, Father, we know that we have a hope that is sure and that is steadfast. And so, God, as we look at the injustices and the persecution that exists in the world, Father, we thank you that we have a hope that is greater than all of that that we have a savior who didn't go to the grave and stay dead, but that he rose again. And Father, we thank you that you give us your spirit to live in us and to work through us. God, that these stories of courage should exist within each and every single one of our lives. God, that as we take stock of, of where we're at, that God, we should see the areas where there's a cost to following after you. But God, as we step out, as we show up and as we speak up for the kingdom of God, 
Father, our prayer is simply that you would use us, that this world that is lost and broken would come to know peace and hope and forgiveness through Jesus. And so, God, we pray for uh, the work of, of IJM and for release and for the work of Stand By Me as, as these organizations reach out to people in desperate need. But, God, we realize that that isn't something just done by the few, but that, God, you call us as your church to be the many, to step out from here and to take your message to wherever our feet find us. So, God, would you give us your eyes to see those opportunities today? And God, as we see them, would you give us the courage to respond? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.